have a seat. And hey, um, did you guys know this is the first Sunday of Lent season? Yeah, believe it or not, that means that it's just 40 days. Well, no, sorry, 40 days from Wednesday. Forget my numbers for a second. Um, It is five weeks (laughs) until Palm Sunday, six weeks until Easter. I mean, isn't that wild? So Lent is, refers to this 40-day period that began this last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday and continues until Palm Sunday. It's a time of prayer and preparation that, that just as, thank you, just as Jesus uh, fasted for 40 days um, and tempted in the wilderness, that we mark out 40 days with Christians across the globe across the globe, as we say, God, is there anything in my heart, my mind, that is hindering me from loving you, serving you fully? That's what this season is about. And so I want to ask, even as we begin this Lent season, just something to think about, right? On our own, are there ways that we can set apart time and space to be more intentional about making ourselves available to God? Right? Some people do that by trying to eliminate things that are distracting them from God. Forms of entertainment, social media, alcohol. Other people try to mark out extra space or space in general for scripture and prayer to connect with God. Others do a combination of both. But what could that look like for you? Right? I'm not going to come to your house, knock on your door and ask you, are you doing it? Right? But it's just a personal challenge between you and God. Like, is there a way? Because we know that we don't give up things like sugar to get ready for bathing suit season. Right? That's not why we do this. We do it so that we can move, make ourselves available to God so that He, by His Spirit, can work within us and bring us closer to Him. And as an overall church, we see Lent as a time to rediscover our love for and awe of Jesus and allow his word to change us in fresh ways. And so with that, we're starting a new sermon series today called Kingdom Come. Kingdom Come. Now, if you're even a little bit familiar with some of Jesus' teachings, you've probably heard him say statements like, well, seek first the kingdom. Or at least that prayer he taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That this word kingdom shows up over 100 times in the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means it must be pretty important. And it was. It was, in fact, central to all of Jesus' teaching throughout the New Testament. And so we're going to seek to dive into that because it's vital. And before we can really understand the full reason why Jesus came and to understand what he did for us and what he wants to do through us, we, this, we have to get a framework for what he means by the kingdom. And so today is going to be a little bit more teachy. Right? I'm gonna, we're going to walk through this and talk about this. Um, there is going to be, like, we're going to drive it home too. But I'm going to try to give us a framework today. And in the coming weeks, we'll continue to build on that and so that we can see what that means. But first, before I get into any of this, I recognize that the, for people like us who live in a democratic society, words like king and kingdom, it's like they don't connect well with us. In fact, <laughs> it's safe to say for a lot of us, kingdom has somewhat of a, a negative connotation in our mind. Like the king's tea went into the harbor, right? That's what we think about the king. 
And we have in our minds, at least here, that you know, monarchies are at big risk for greed, oppression. Democracy is the way to go. And so the word kingdom doesn't always hit us right away, but we're going to be saying instead, no, 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 what does Jesus mean by kingdom? But for others of us, we have a hard time connecting with this because kingdoms are things that belong in storybooks, not real life. And when I think of kingdom, I think of, I don't know, King Arthur and the Round Table, you know, or, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Knights of Me, right? Whatever it is. All right, you got your own. But again, kingdom belongs to storybook, not real life. So when Jesus says, may your kingdom come on earth, number one, we don't know what that means. And number two, like, what would that even look like? Because kingdom is not something that I necessarily interact with. And so we're going to be diving into this in order to, again, understand what does Jesus mean by kingdom. And as we do, I hope you see how the whole biblical story unfolds for you. And that you'll find yourself with a deeper, richer understanding of why Jesus came. And the goal of all of this, though, is so that we can be in awe of our king again. And that we can learn to envision what does it look like when his kingdom comes to our lives, to our church, to our home, to our society. And if we can envision it, then you know what? We start to pray for it with fresh faith. And if we can pray for it with fresh faith, then we can learn to recognize the opportunities around us to represent our king in this world. So you see, this series, this Lent time, is not just about information. It's about transformation. That we, our homes, our church, our society, might be, we might see the reality of God's kingdom come to each of those things. So as we dive in, first today, we're just going to get, like I said, a framework for this. Number one, what, when Jesus, if Jesus talks about the kingdom a ton, what does it mean? What kind of king, what kind of kingdom is this? And as we start to get it, how does this change us? And in order to answer those questions, we're going to begin reading when Jesus began his public ministry. So in in Matthew chapter 3, we meet a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes with this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. But John makes it clear. He says, "But, but I'm not the king, right? I'm the messenger. I'm just here ahead of him just to tell you about him. And then one chapter later, we see Jesus begins to preach to the crowds for the first time. And what's his message? The kingdom of heaven has come near. But he doesn't point to anybody else. Why? Because he is that king. He is that king. Does that send chills up your spine like it does me? And so if you want to drive, like, lean in with me, we're on Matthew chapter 4. Verses 12 to 17. And if you want to look with me in the Blueback Bibles, we're on page 785. 785. And we try to say it every Sunday, but we'll say it. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of these with you. This is our gift to you. And the more that we can get God's Word in people's hands, we know that it's going to transform us. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse, starting at verse 12, reading verse 17. Jesus is going public. You ready? If you're ready, say, I am. Got a few people. Everybody else ready? All right. Matthew 4, verse 12. 
When Jesus heard that John, being John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Look to your neighbor and say, the kingdom of heaven has come near. All right, let me lead us in prayer and we're going to jump in. Jesus, there's a lot of things that you said that are kind of confusing sometimes. And the idea of a kingdom is something that's just confusing for us in this time. In a democratic society, like God, it's hard for us to connect with it. We really need your spirit to illuminate your word for us. To make it clear, to make it plain. But not just to get us our heads, God, but actually transform our hearts and our lives. So will you do that in the way that only you can? In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have this Jewish rabbi, Jesus, going public. Before he did that, John the Baptist said he's coming. When Jesus was baptized, it said the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Then the voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus went into the wilderness 40 days to fast where he was tempted, came out victorious over this temptation, and now, now, the best PR director in the world, the Holy Spirit, is leading Jesus to Capernaum where he's going to begin preaching this message. And his message that he says right out the gate is, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if those are his first words, they must be important. So what does it mean? Well, first, before we even get into that, we've got to first understand that Jesus did not create the idea of the kingdom right here. Right? The kingdom that arrived in Christ is the same one promised in the scriptures long before. Jesus didn't start his public ministry with a new idea or to start a new religion. But this was an earth-shaking announcement in fulfillment of all that God had promised since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. A New Testament professor named George Eldon Ladd, wrote one of the most famous books on the kingdom of God. It's called The Gospel of the Kingdom. If you really want to dig into this more on your own, I would totally recommend that book. It was written back in the 50s, but it's still so relevant today. But in, in this book, he defines, just as a working definition for us, the kingdom of heaven as the realm in which God's reign may be experienced. Experienced. See, the kingdom is where God, wherever God fully reigns and his kingship is fully applied. So in that sense, you could translate Jesus' words here as the promised reign of God has come near or the kingship of God has come near. And i got to say that. When was the last time in Scripture that we saw the kingship of God fully, completely applied across every area? the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis chapter 2. It was that paradise where the man and woman existed in perfect relationship with God. But when the man and woman, as you know, many of you know this story, decided that they were going to listen to God's enemy, the serpent, instead they were going to commit treason or rebellion against their God, 
That's the moment that all of a sudden their relationship with God became severed. And when that garden was once a place where God's reign was fully applied and experienced, now it became a place no longer where that was their experience. Because separated from their creator, the life giver, they were now under a curse of sin. Their minds became dark. Their hearts grew cold to God and one another. And the earth itself became broken, hard, painful to cultivate. But guys, we know it wasn't just Adam and Eve, the first man and woman who rebelled against God. I mean, that's all of us. That's all of our story, is it not? We've all thought, man, my way is better than God's way. I want to live for myself instead of him. But even though, and this is our God, folks, even though we failed to give our creator and king the allegiance that's due him, he didn't give up on us. But he promised his kingdom would come again. And I want, to show, I want to show us just how through the Old Testament we see over and over and over and over God promising this thing to come. When that serpent deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, it was the serpent's declaration of war against God and all whom God loved. But after that, God promised this thing. Genesis 3.15. God promised, he says, though this happened, there is one who will come to crush the serpent's head even while the serpent bruises his heel. You see, the coming king, the coming kingdom will defeat the power of evil over humanity. But God's not done. Genesis 12, he shows up to a man named Abram, and he says, Abram, from you is going to come a great nation and a family who will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And right there, he is promising that his kingdom also, when he reigns, he's going to overturn the curse of sin in the world and bring his blessing. But he's not done. He says to the Israelites, after delivering them from slavery in Egypt, he says, you guys, you're going to be to me a people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. That the coming kingdom is also going to be a holy one of purity and liberty. And that God's people are going to be empowered to become like him and to represent him to the world. To King David, God says, I'm going to give you a kingdom and I'm going to establish it. And no one will ever be able to overturn it. To, to Isaiah, God promised this picture of a kingdom to come that will be without war, but all only justice and peace, where even the wolf can rest alongside the lamb and the, and, and the calf with the lion. God gave Daniel. He says, I want to give you this vision, buddy, of one like a son of man coming from the clouds, who is given authority, glory, sovereign power to judge the wickedness of this world and to make all things right once and for all. And this kingdom will never be destroyed. And the people of God will be this beautifully diverse people from all nations and languages united in their allegiance to their king. And Matthew, when he's telling the story, he's like, ooh, ooh, I got another one. I got another one too. We just read what he gave us was Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Where he says, yeah, and when the kingdom comes, do you remember? He says, it's going to come like light in the midst of the darkness that a light will dawn upon those living under the shadow of death. Guys, I could keep going, but you get it, right? You get it. All of these things are not talking about different kingdoms. It's talking about the same one. 
And they're all getting qualities, characteristics of what it will be like when God's reign fully encompasses all things. Then when God's reign is complete and he is the king over all, all creation will be rescued from Satan, sin, and death. All that went wrong from our rebellion will be made right. And all who belong to him are made like him and authorized to represent him. All of that is in those few words, the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus means. Is that not mind-blowing? All right, where is it then? It, like, is it here now? Or is it something that's, that, that's coming? Like, like, is it in the future or is it present? Both. Both. See, in Jesus, God's kingdom has come and is coming. Focus hard with me here, because this, this is where I can lose people if I'm not, we're not careful. Focus hard with me on that uh, chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, The kingdom of heaven has come near. See those words, has come near? The original, this was originally re- written in Greek. And the original Greek verb for has come near is not a future tense, as in the kingdom of heaven will come one day. And it's not a present tense, meaning that it has come right now. Greek has another tense that we don't really have much of in English. At least I don't think we do. I wasn't that great at grammar. But it's called a perfect tense. We do? Who said that? Thank you. So we have this in English, too. (laughs) You know, I speak for a living. You know, this is (laughs) like language is kind of what I do, but whatever. But the perfect tense, which is this verb, speaks of something that has come and is coming at the same time. Is that confusing? Yeah, it kind of is to me, too. But let me see if I can make it more plain here. About six weeks ago, Shelby, the kids, and I went down to eastern Tennessee, which is the mountainous side of Tennessee, where both our families are from. And we stayed with my folks for a few days. And my parents live on the side of this small mountain in in this beautiful valley in east Tennessee. And one morning, my dad and I decided that we were going to get up before the sun got up so that we could see it rise. And so we got out of bed, walked outside on this frigid morning, but went up the mountain behind their house, nearly to the top where there's this clearing in the trees. And we sat there and watched and waited for the dawn to break. And the the pre-dawn colors of pink and orange started lighting up some of the clouds like John the Baptist preparing the way for the sun. And as they began to light up, I could then see the valley underneath us, but it was still dark, frostbitten. And all of a sudden, the sun with a ray of light over the mountains in the distance and began to beam right into that cold, frost-bitten valley and thaw it with its warmth. And in this moment, I realized, has the light of God come? Yes. Has it taken its high place in the sky yet? No. No. As it shone into that valley, I could still see shadows in the midst of that valley. But the light had come. 
And I knew that because the light had come, it was only a matter of time before it took its high place in the sky and all shadows in that valley and all cold disappeared. That was a picture of one thing that had come, but not fully come. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near, that light has dawned, he had come. And we can know that it's just a matter of time now before the divine rule of God will spread over every corner of existence through Christ. But if we know that Christ has come and his kingdom is fully coming again one day, what does that mean for us? What is the only obvious response to news like this? If Jesus says it's come and is coming in full one day, what does he say to do? Then when the Christ kingdom comes, it demands we pledge our hearts to him and him alone. So Jesus then uses this word repent, repent. But hey, if you have a hard time connecting with a word like kingdom, my guess is a lot of us have a hard time connecting with the word like repent too. All right, a lot of us get this image of, I don't know, an angry, spitting preacher who's well-meaning but seems devoid of grace and love. Right, but I, like, take that image if you can for a second and just kind of put that over here. Because again, we're going to say, what does God's word tell us about this? And the, the original word for repent is this word metanoeo which is where we get the word metamorphosis. Because this word repent means not just to change our behavior, but to change our entire being, heart, mind, and body. That repentance isn't just about a change in what we do, but who we love. So if I'm driving carelessly, recklessly, let's say, and a cop pulls me over and I say, but I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I pay the fine, and then I drive well for a couple days, but then on the third day, I'm like back to my reckless driving self. Have I repented at all? No. No, my behavior changed for a bit, but I didn't repent. But if I realize, my goodness, I am a danger to other human beings on the road, so I'm going to start driving safer in order to protect other people, now there's something that has changed in the way that I think about driving in my heart that is a picture of repentance. So when Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here, he's not saying, you better watch out, you better not cry because I'm coming to town, shape up for a while, right? What he is saying is the kingdom of heaven is coming in hand. Who do you love most? Because Jesus declares that in light of the king and his kingdom, now is the time to decide who we will love and who we will follow because we can't serve two kings. The first of the Ten Commandments to the Israelites was, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is basically echoing the same thing. He's drawing a line in the sand. And the challenge of the coming kingdom is not just to believe in God, a concept of God, or to call ourselves a Christian. But it's, will we pledge the allegiance of our entire heart to him? And this is a challenge because we can say, I believe somewhat easily, can't we? We can go to church on a Sunday. We can call ourselves a Christian. We can hang out with other Christians. But 
All the while, have we given our entire heart to him? Because, man, there have been days in my own life where I have allowed my fear over not having enough money to determine how I live instead of my faith in God. There have been times where I realize, man, (laughs) godly qualities serve me and my family, but not always at work. Greed sometimes serves at work better, doesn't it? There are times when we may be tempted to please Christ and other people at the same time. But that's kind of impossible to do, is it not? That we can try to build Christ's kingdom, but I'll have my own little kingdom going for me over here too. So the question that probes my heart when I hear this is, is there anything, is there a relationship, is there a job, Is there stuff, anything, that if threatened or taken away causes me to want to turn my back on God? And I could have my own confession hour on this one. But if the loss of something or someone could cause us to turn from God, that means we're following God on a conditional basis. And if it's conditional, then my heart never really fully belongs to him. And if the light has dawned in Christ, why are we still looking in the shadows for love, joy, peace, security, hope? And if we realize that that is our heart, and then we find ourselves wanting to kind of follow God over here, but not over here, what does Jesus say? He just says, turn back around, man. Come, give your whole life back to me. Trust me with your life. But Kirk, that's hard. Like, like some of these things are really hard to let go of. It's hard to put God first in every area of my life. And man, I get that. I understand that. But Jesus is not asking us to figure out how to do that on our own. He never did. But how is it that we become, we learn to trust Jesus? That as we gaze on the cross where the King of glory died in love for us, It dawns on us that he is the only king worthy of our whole lives. We don't change by just looking at ourselves. We change by gazing at who our God is. But why is it that we do often withhold part of our lives from God? Well, I've seen a couple different reasons, at least for me. One, I don't trust God will do what I think is best. Like, I want his kingship for my kids. (laughs) But I don't know that I want his kingship for my entertainment life. I want his light to shine on my marriage. But I'll kind of keep this area of my life in the shadows. Why? Because I don't trust him in every area. I don't think that he's going to work these things out for my best ultimately. If I surrender the throne of my life to God, will it actually be for my good? Or two, I'm ashamed of what God might show me if I open my heart to him. I know that God knows everything that's in my heart. That doesn't mean that I want to know everything that's in my heart. (laughs) Right? Right? 
I mean, and when God, when I open up my heart and say, God, come, do what you want in me, he starts showing me that my motives are pretty selfish a lot of the time. He starts showing me that I'm, I'm not quite as holy as I think I am and righteous and pure. But he does that not to harm me. He does that to heal me. But I don't always feel that way in the beginning. And so I'd much rather just keep him at an arm's length so that I can just keep these things in the shadows. One of the reasons why we don't give it all is we don't trust that God has our best. And we sometimes want to hide certain parts of ourselves from him. But if we knew who our king was, if we gaze upon who our king was, that begins to shift our, under, shift our understanding of these things. Because if we think that Jesus is just like other earthly kings or rulers who, who seek to take from people to seek their best or seek to just punish erratically just to maintain control, that means we don't know our God. But instead, Jesus is called the light in this passage because, number one, he is radically, radiantly different Because when we were suspicious of him, when we opposed him, meaning we acted like enemies against him, he didn't come to us in judgment as we deserved, but in grace. So I want us to imagine, as Jesus is saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, don't imagine this angry scowl on his face, but imagine the eyes of compassion with tears coming down saying, guys, come on, come. Because he knew the day would come. When instead of coming with grace, he would come to set all things right again. He would come again and shadows would not be able to hide. And he would judge all those who have hardened their hearts against them. But in order to save us from that judgment, our guiltless king traded a royal robe for a tattered flesh. A crown of gold for one of thorns. A heavenly throne. For a cross reserved for criminals. That as the song said, see from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? That he suffered the judgment we deserve, so we could be free from guilt. That is radically different, radiantly different from any other king or ruler on this earth. But Jesus is also called the light because, two, he overpowered the dark. When light shows up, what does dark do? Scatter. And when our king descended into the shadows of death, death proved powerless to hold him. And he did it all. Because he is blasting throughout history this invitation that we hear as repent also means come out of the shadows, everybody. Come, give the full allegiance of your heart to me, the one who's willing to give my whole self to you in love. Come, follow me. And when we do, we join the triumphal parade of his kingdom as forgiven people washed clean by his blood and filled with his spirit, that his spirit within us is the very presence of his kingdom working itself out in every aspect of our lives. The one true king has come. Step out of the shadows. The light has dawned. So our prayer is may his kingdom come to our lives, to our homes, to our church, to our community. 
But first, Christ wants it to come to our hearts. And so if you're hearing a lot of this kingdom language and it's still very confusing to you, <laughs> that's completely okay. Right? We got a whole series to work through these things. We got a lot more questions to unpack about it. But for today, the main question that I just want to leave us with is have you given your whole life to Christ? Maybe listening today, you realize that Jesus has been more of a concept than a living God to you. You believed in an idea, but you've never really trusted him with your heart and your life. Or maybe you thought that the Christian life is just about me behaving better so that God, and God kind of helping me out every now and then so that I can be a better person instead of a relationship of love bought by the life of Jesus himself and a radically new life brought about by his resurrection. That's very different. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to start a relationship of love that transforms us from the inside out. And if you realize, man, something's stirring in you and you've never received this, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And that I, um, I'm going to ask everybody just to bow their heads. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. This prayer is one way that you could express this to Jesus. One way. Like you may have your own way, your own way to tell it to him. And I encourage you to just make sure it's sincere. That's, that's my main thing is make sure it's sincere. But if you want to know how to be led to pray to give your life to Jesus, and you've never done that before, just repeat these words after me. Just say, Jesus, thank you for loving me even when I didn't love you. Thank you for dying for me when I opposed you. Thank you for setting me free from the sin and evil that wants to control me. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. And teach me how to become like you. In Jesus' name, amen.